0: 18 plus. All right. As long as that looks all right, then uh, we're probably good. We're probably good to go.
1: All right. Okay. So, um, with me on the line is uh, Tom Campbell. Tom Campbell. Just to give you guys a little bit of a background on who he is, and I'm not going to roll through his entire bio because that would take up the entire allotted amount of time that we have set aside. Um, graduated in 1966 with honors in math and physics from Bethany College. Um, got his master's from Purdue University in 1968. Uh, did his Ph.D. work in uh, University of Virginia specializing in experimental nuclear physics. Um, left to work as a contractor with the DOD in the Missile Defense Program uh, since retired and did some consulting work with NASA uh, assessing risk problems and vulnerability. And then um, a little bit backtracking, Tom did some research and background at altered states of consciousness with Bob Monroe at Monroe Laboratories in 1970s and the thing that I really wanted to get across to the audience is that um, his his stick at the last part of his um, bio is very, very true. And it's what we at the We Are Not Cattle, um, I guess, community like to preach and that um, there is no belief system, dogma, creed, or unusual assumptions at the root of the My Big Toe. And that's one of the things that we try to push against is the, the stigmas of the status quo, the dogma, and all of the predetermined belief systems that are out in the in the world today. So, once again, thank you, Tom, for the time. We really appreciate it. Okay. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's fun to be here. Well, just um, quickly, I, I had a question, and this is always fun to talk about because I'm a fellow nerd. And um, uh, what what about physics and mathematics piqued your interest? And and when did this happen?
0: Well, I think I was always um, kind of predisposed to go toward science, uh, not math. I struggled with math, but I was predisposed to go toward probably engineering or science from a very early age. I was one of those guys that took everything apart, you know, when I was five years old, you know, I wanted to know how the, fr- the flashlight worked and how, you know, the radio worked and everything would be disassembled and occasionally it would get reassembled, but, uh <laughs> yeah, that... Uh, you know, what do they have this little joke thing goes around? I had the knack, you know, which is a, a kind of a little joke, um, anyway, about engineers. So when I went to uh, undergraduate school, I uh, thought I would either go into physics or chemistry. Okay. And I had a hard time making up my mind about that, but uh, decided that there was more new things going on in, in physics at the time. This would have been in the, the uh, early 60s. Mm-hmm. And so I went. I went to physics. Now math is a different thing. I struggled with math. I um, kind of. I'm a natural right brain, uh, holistic kind of see the big picture kind of guy. As I was growing sure. up, and math, mm-hmm. of course, along with physics, is very much a uh, you know a, a left brain, logical process kind of thing. And
2: mm-hmm.
0: through school, I had the idea, or at least I had the feeling. That though I was interested in the math science thing, it was challenging for me. And that's mm-hmm. why I wanted to do it. It was the hardest thing that I had ever tried to do. I always struggled with it, high school as well. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, if I'm having that much trouble with it, that's what I need to do. That's what I need to work on. So I I went into the physics, which is more math-based than the chemistry. And I did struggle mm-hmm. with it. And... Uh, I learned it. You know. I got by. I could, I could uh, do the math and do the physics, and a funny thing happened that eventually I trained my left brain to be as, as, you know, to be as comfortable with the left brain as I was with the right brain, and then suddenly the math got real easy. You know, It got kind of trivial, and that happened because now it was both a right brain and a left brain problem. I could see the whole big picture mm-hmm. of the math and what it was doing and the logic of it and the overall structure in a right brain sense of kind of intuitive math, if you will. But I could also follow, you know, all the logical process going through it. And then it got much easier for me. And so did the, so did the physics about that time. So it was a kind of a struggle to end up being whole-brained, I guess, from the beginning. So I went into it because it challenged me. And I had an intuitive Right brain, you know, I'm a right brain person. I had the intru- an intuitive sense it was a challenge I needed to take on. That I, that it was important for me to go that route. So that's kind of an odd story, okay. but that's how I, you know, that's how I got there.
1: Interesting, and uh, I think that a lot of us do struggle with it, especially people that are trying to gain knowledge and and utilize information that we have available to us in this physical in this physical realm. We do we do struggle with the um, left and right brain brain imbalance and some of us to, to a very large extent to where it's almost detrimental, but um, it's really interesting that you, you, you saw it in that perspective that it was something that was very challenging for you, so that's the way that you needed to go. Most people would tuck tail and run and say, I'll just, I'll just stay away from math. Math is really difficult, but that's um, fascinating that you took, it, um, took the bull by the horns, and I hate to use that analogy, but pretty much what it was so um let's talk about your time with with bob monroe and how that changed your your perception of reality before i met bob the only
0: experience i had with a larger view of reality and by larger view i mean the typical physicist which i was uh then pretty much reality is physical if you can't measure it it isn't relevant you know that's kind of called an operational Mm -hmm. definition of reality if you can't measure it then it really isn't relevant relevance you can't you won't go as far as to say it doesn't exist because now you're making another assumption but you can say that if it does it does exist or doesn't exist really doesn't make any difference because if you can't measure it you know it's really not here in this reality and it's not really something you can deal with or count on anyway so it becomes irrelevant so that's a standard attitude toward reality from the physics community and i had that i came with that okay. but somewhere in my Last couple of years as a graduate student, I started with Transcendental Meditation. And I had a very practical reason for that. The, the uh, flyer promised that uh, you could get by with less sleep and be more effective. And if you're a graduate student and you're working 16 hours a day, <laughs> getting by with less sleep is a very attractive, uh, you know, come on. So I took, the, I took the course, and it was a natural. I guess that right-brained fundamental, you know, part of me just synced right into it. And uh, I found it just easy. Mm-hmm. You know, the very first time that I was supposed to do my practice meditation, I was often just gone, you know, for an extended time. So it was a natural thing for me to do. And I soon found out that I could do uh, program debugging while in an altered state, while in a meditation state, much more efficiently and much more quickly than I could if I was awake and had the, the uh, printout in my hand and was trying to figure it out. This was back in the days of punch cards, you know, this is way back. See, I, I, right. I go back to the dinosaur days of computing, and with punch cards, you'd have, well, in this case, I had something like four mm-hmm. boxes of punch cards, which was one program, and I don't remember how many cards mm-hmm. that was, but it was a lot of cards, and we didn't have the kind of error-checking right. and debugging software that's available now, And the tiniest thing could go wrong. The punch on the punch card might be just a little off-center. After all, it's a mechanical thing that punches holes in paper. And if it wasn't lined up just right, that would be an error when you ran the computer. Or in the code that you were writing, uh, in that case I was writing in uh, Algol, of all things, another ancient dinosaur that's uh, long long dead. And, uh, you know, if you put a comma where a semicolon should have been, you know, it doesn't work. So it's really hard out of, say, 4,000, mm-hmm. 5,000, 10,000 cards to find an error because all the machine right. would tell you, this thing didn't work. It didn't say that there's a problem with the punch holes on card right. number 875. We never had that kind of stuff. So it was really hard, and it took, it took us mm-hmm. a month to do what now a good um, you know, person sitting down with a computer could probably do in half a day. You know, It was that sort of thing. So this debugging sure. was laborious. You might work for weeks and mm-hmm. weeks and weeks to find, you know, to get the errors out of your out of your program. Well, I could bring that up in an altered state. Right. Look for the errors and they would pop right out at me. They were obvious. I'd kind of scroll through the through the uh, the lines of code in my mind and and, you know, kind of have an, an intent to find the errors. And I'd just go from one error to the next, and I'd kind of look at it and remember it, and I'd go to the next one. And sure enough, when I'd go and look at the deck of cards, that's where the errors were. So now I could debug a box of cards, you know, in an evening that otherwise was three weeks' worth of work. Well, that was important to me, you know. That was a really, really big deal. And that, that told me there's something, there's another dimension here. You know, I mean dimension as a metaphor. You know, there's, there's, there's something else going on here. Besides, if you can't measure it, it isn't important. That reality was really bigger than that. So my mind was open at that point to some other explanation of other things happening, but I had no idea, no sense of what that could be. So when I ran into Bob Monroe in 1972, um, Bob, uh, of course, had written the book, Journeys Out of the Body. That was his, that's the only book he had written at that time, and he... Was a, he was not an engineer, but he acted like one. He had the mindset. He was a very left-brain, honest, kind of straightforward guy. And this out-of-body thing, had happened to him. He didn't want it to happen. He tried to make it not happen, but it did anyway. So he went with it and studied it and wrote a book about it. And he was looking for scientists to man a lab that he had just built because he wanted to understand it. He wanted to make science out of it. He wanted to be able to teach other people to do it, rather than him just be the crazy guy that had these funny things that nobody could verify, you see. He wanted to make it real, so he built this lab. He, was, he had a fair number of resources, sure. and uh, he owned a cable company back in the day that cable was just getting started, and he had other things going on in his financial life that gave him plenty of resources, so he built this lab, and I ran into him as a physicist just about the time he was looking for scientists to help man his lab. And I had this a year or so back idea that reality is really bigger than we understand because otherwise I couldn't debug code like that. So I immediately volunteered. And I had the attitude, though, if this turns out to be bogus, you know, if this just doesn't turn out to be much of anything other than, you know, the lawyer leading leading the witness, you know, and and that kind of thing, then I'm out of here. I wanted to know as a physicist: Am I going to finally get some mm-hmm. idea about what's going on and how this, you know, mm-hmm. meditation and altered states of consciousness, how it works? What is it? Because I I knew there was something real there. I'd experienced mm-hmm. that. So that was kind of the connection between between Bob and I. And our deal was that I'd help him do science if he would help me get the same kind of um, ability to explore this larger consciousness system that he had. And he took me up on that. It was just, not just me. It was me and, a, and another fellow, mm-hmm. Dennis Menorick. We did this together. He, we both worked at the same place. And uh, so we did that for the next, mm-hmm. you know, five, s- re- very intensely for the next five years and less intensely for another ten years after that. Mm-hmm. We um, um, worked with Bob. We spent anywhere from 15 to 25 hours a week with Bob Monroe. So every night we were out to Bob's, you know, right after dinner, six o'clock. We were on the on the highway going out to Bob's. We'd stay until two or three o'clock in the morning. We'd be back, sleep two, three hours, get up and go to work, you know, and that was Mm -hmm. kind of the way we lived for about five years. And uh, so a lot of hours were put in and eventually Mm -hmm. Bob did teach us to experience this larger consciousness system. And when he did, we were only interested in things that were evidential. You know, what could you do that you could prove that you did it? You know, that sort of thing. So a lot of it was remote viewing Mm -hmm. sorts of things. You know, can you see what's going on somewhere else that otherwise you wouldn't know if it wasn't some kind of, uh, you know, paranormal experience, then you wouldn't know what was going on there. We did um, trying to look into the uh, future to see if we could tell what was happening there. We did healing and kept some statistics on you know, whether we were successful or not. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if you can heal somebody 50% of the time, you're just kidding yourself that you're healing anybody at all. You know, that's just guessing. So, you know, we had all that stuff going, and that was kind of our, our deal. Right. Meanwhile, we were trying very hard to learn how one could use technology to help the average person uh, experience these altered states of consciousness. And that was a, was a second goal that we had in mind. And Dennis and I came up with uh, what turned out to be hemisync later. It was just binaural beats as the active ingredient. So anyway, that was kind of my experience there. So after okay. that got to be a big success and started to turn commercial, Bob and Dennis and I gave this seminar where we had a lot of people that Bob knew come in to test out this technology, technology we had found with the binaural beats. It was so successful that more people wanted to come, and then more people wanted to come, and pretty soon it wasn't research anymore. It was training. You know, Dennis and I became trainers. And uh, okay. so we kind of slipped out the back while other people mm-hmm. took over for us. And some years after that, it turned into the Mon- the Monroe Institute and, be, you know, had its own corporate entity and whatever. Um, you know, we were kind of – Dennis and I were kind of through with the time it got to be official and had its own, you know – its own facilities, and that kind of thing. So we were very early with Bob Monroe and the Monroe Institute uh, in helping come up with those things. So then after that, I ended up on the board of directors of the Monroe Institute and stayed in that capacity for another decade. So that's kind of my association with the Monroe Institute. But all of that still is 20, you know, 23, 20 years old, you know, 20 years old. So that's kinda of ancient history. That was back in the early seventies sure. and board of directors was, you know, early eighties.
1: Now you guys did some some work with sensory deprivation N- no, tanks. No, not
0: tanks. We had th- we had three booths in Monroe's lab and the booths were were acoustically isolated, I meaning they were soundproofed. They uh were electromagnetically isolated. They sure. were uh had um, sheet metal inside the walls that was all grounded and and soldered at the at the joints. So we were in like a Faraday okay. cage, and uh, sure. and they had a, a, a microphone hanging from the ceiling that would down kind of over our mouth. They had a, a little a little water bed in it, okay, and we would lie in this water bed. Mm-hmm. A single water bed had the microphone down over our to our mouth, and we had a audio contact between mm-hmm. us in the lab and Bob in the control room, and he could talk to both of us at once or to mm-hmm. one of us individually, Okay, but we were isolated um, sound-wise. Right. We couldn't hear each other, so that was its not really sensory deprivation. That was too expensive. We would have liked that, but a waterbed is the poor man's sensory deprivation. If the waterbed is heated exactly to your skin temperature... And if it's a very soft water bed, not one you'd really want to sleep in, but one you uh-huh. just kind of sink into. And uh, that was our best shot at cheap sensory mm-hmm. deprivation.
1: Okay, so that basically, it, it, it simulates the same kind of thing, the, the loss of gravity uh, against your body, so your mind doesn't right. have to, to calculate that in, and that's where you get the, I guess, the release of um, consciousness. Now, I did want to ask about the... Um, you mentioned in one of your lectures that the two of you actually tried to go out and and have a conversation with each other outside of the um, outside of I guess this physical realm. What was the What was the result of that? Because oh, I don't well, think yes, I ever that heard was it. A, that was an I'd experiment. That Bob you, thought so. up
0: for Dennis and I, and we were probably two or three years into our okay. association with Bob Monroe and Rowan, going out to the lab. And both Dennis and I were still at that point of mm-hmm. well, yeah, the statistics show that what we're doing is way beyond chance, right? Because you do statistics. What's the probability this would have happened anyway? You know, like the healing, you know, it's 50-50. The probability it would be like that anyway is, you know, very high. So we kept those, track of those kinds of things. And it was like one in a hundred thousand that the things that we were doing and seeing and experiencing uh, were just chance, the evidential things that we were doing. So we knew in our minds, intellectually, we knew that there was something real, going on here, just like me with the doing the, the computer code. I knew something was going on there. But that's different than getting it at a very deep gut level. At the gut level, it was still, uh, I don't know, you know, I'm uh, not quite sure. I'm not going to tell you that's all real, you know, what we're experiencing yet, because, uh, you know, you couldn't really put a logical face on it, but it just, you know, that's just the way I am. That's the dentist. Also, he was an electrical engineer, so both of us are techies, you see, and, uh, you know, logical process is what we do, sure. and we can't get there and, unless, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's really, really clear that it's real, and, you know, we're doing this, so we're, we're, we're struggling with that all along, and we're a few years in, and we're struggling with that, and Bob caught, thought up this idea to help us deal with that, or at least verify it, and see what happened, and he asked both of us to go out-of-body and to meet while we were out-of-body, in the out-of-body state, to meet and then to go
2: mm-hmm.
0: do things together, but always stick together so we could have any kind of out-of-body experience we wanted as long as we had it together. And uh, we agreed to try that. You know, we had no idea what okay. might happen, so we went out-of-body, met up above the lab. Kinda, both of us had our intent to always stick together. And Bob was, was um, talking to each of us individually. Yeah. Never could Dennis and I hear, you know, a matter of fact, I was in mm-hmm. unit one the, and there was a unit two and then Dennis in unit three. So besides each room mm-hmm. being soundproofed, there was a, another soundproof room, you know, between us. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, that went on. We had an experience, a very eventful okay. experience. It probably lasted two hours. It was a long experience. And uh, at the end of it, Bob got us both together and he played the tape for us because he had two different cassette tapes. It was cassette tapes in that day, you know, another dating goes with Algol computer language, right? We had cassette tapes and Dennis's track was on one was one <laughs> tape and my track was on a different tape. And uh, so he put both the tapes in, rewound them, and then turned the tape player on both both tapes went at the same time. So they were synced in time. And there' Uh, we heard you know, Dennis and I heard we were talking to each other, we were answering each other's questions, we were having conversation, we were pointing out things, we saw the same kinds of things. Oh, look over there, you know, there's somebody there, there's this or there's that, you know, the things that you're doing out of body. And we would then talk about that. Well, do you want to go over? Sure, let's go on over. And we did, and then we'd interact maybe with that entity or being and but there it all was, and it was totally inescapable mm-hmm. that we were together in this experience, and were experiencing the same thing. You know it just it was from Dennis's viewpoint and mm-hmm. mine, so there was a little bit of you know uh, uh, a little bit of difference in in the metaphors and how we said things. You know, I might say it's something you know tall and thin, and he sure. may have said, "Well, it's tall and cylindrical, you know that kind of thing. We picked different words. But we obviously were talking about the same thing. And uh, that is what finally mm-hmm. got to me at the what I call the being level. I already knew something really strange had been going on at the intellectual level. Right. I got that. But at the being level, I was still dragging my feet, not wanting to say that this this is real because I really couldn't explain it. And I don't like to say things are real that I can't explain. It just rubbed me the wrong right. way. But that was it for that You know, that was kind of put me in shock for a couple of weeks because there was no way getting around it. This was real. And from that point on, my passion then in this endeavor was to figure out how does it work? What are the limitations? Mm -hmm. What is it? Where is it? Why is it? Right. What can I do? What can I do? I know there's other entities there. I know I can remote view. I can do all these things, but what else? And what limitations are on those things? You know, how far can I take that? Mm -hmm. Uh, What's the, what's going on here? So that was then what I, I worked on. Being a physicist, that's what we do. We model reality. That's kind of our job. That's the way we think. So that's what I started to do. Sure. But it was a long, long process. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm trying to model reality. And that's probably another uh, three or four years that we were with, with Bob, maybe another two years that we were tightly with Bob that I worked on it. But then afterwards, I worked on it all the time, you know, by myself. It's just... I wanted to understand it, and sure. about twenty-five years later, almost thirty years later, I thought I had a pretty good handle on it, which is when I wrote the books. You know, that's, I wrote the three books, My Big Toe trilogy. So that's kind of how it all how it all came together. Now most of the most of the ways I figured it out. I had to figure it out on my own. It wasn't like I went out of body and asked some wise guy, hey, how does this work? And the wise guy said, oh, well, it's like this, you know, and told me it doesn't work that way. And uh, I just had to figure it out. But I would never have figured it out if I had done all the figuring from the physical side of the equation. Most of it I was able to figure out because I could do experiments in the non-physical side. In the in the larger reality side, I could see how it works, change parameters, go back and do it again, see what the difference was, you know, just typical science, you know. You just run through the variables, try to isolate variables, see what changes what and uh, how things are related, and eventually came up with, uh, you know, an idea how it all works. So that's kind of the beginning and uh, and the roots of it all. But through all of that time that I was doing that, even while I was writing those books, I was a working physicist,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and um, you know I had these two two worlds, if you will, that uh, right. are kind of unusual. But uh, I was a working physicist, and I was able to use a lot of what I was learning to understand while I was working and doing my physics. You know, just like I could do the, mm-hmm. the better physics with uh, you know mm-hmm. debugging computer code. You know, it helped. It helped my. My, uh, well, in that case, it helped my research, my thesis research, you know. But in this case, it helped the work that I was doing. So they're not really terribly incompatible other than I kept them separate. I didn't share those two realities. You know, people at work, I was just a physicist at work. And, um, you know, when I was doing this, you know, I wasn't at work. So it was – I kept the two worlds kind of separate because they don't, you know, they don't play well together. But – but. um I did keep the same kinda absolute um you know, scientist attitude going through through all of it. So that's that's kinda where mm-hmm. how I got to where I am sure. and uh, the the path the odd path that took me there.
1: <laughs> well it's it's always interesting because um I went from and I guess I am on a, a journey of my own and i went from just being part of the status quo and and just buying into anything that the that the system told me to um starting to question my own reality and it started taking me to places that i never thought that i would go either and started taking me to instead of sitting down and watching um you know television shows to just rot my brain for the most part i sit down and watch lectures i sit down and try to learn i try to lower my entropy and we're going to get into that here in a little bit and I think it's very very fascinating that most people when they do come to a, a realization that that the reality that they're experiencing is a lot bigger than it than than what they perceived before there's there's no other way to to go but to to try to yeah. gather information and figure out what's going on I think that that's a logical step yeah. for for us as a, a inquisitive you know conscious beings so um Before we get into the actual the crux of of the theory um let's let's define some terms because I think it's very important for people to understand when we when we mention these terms what what the working definition of these terms are or at least the context that we're going to use these terms. So that people understand that they're, we're not um, we're not going to mix euphemisms or anything like that. That it'll be very succinct and people can understand. So, um, if you could give us briefly well, what is your working definition two, of consciousness?
0: Uh, attributes to it, and uh, well, it, all right, let's just start there. It has two attributes to it, and one is awareness, and the other one is decision space. Okay. Now, decision space okay. is probably a new term too. Uh, decision okay. space is. A consciousness's ability to make choices, okay, which then implies free will. You have the free will to make choices, and if you can choose to, you know, go this way, that way, or the other way, then that's three choices. And because you have free will, you can decide which one of those ways you want to go. Sure. So that's simply decision space. Now, if you are, um, you know, a man's best friend, a little puppy dog then your decision space is relatively small compared to a man's decision space mm-hmm. because the mental content, and the things you deal with, and the choices you have are smaller. But they're also different. You know, it's a different set of choices, but generally it's a smaller set of choices. So different entities have different sized decision spaces. Mm-hmm. You know, you uh, get to something uh, where we might even argue whether there okay. was any decision space, like maybe a bumblebee, you know, but I've watched a bumblebee uh, track its sure. victim, if you will, you know, lay a plan to snare it and get it. And it wasn't uh, just out of its uh, instincts, I mm-hmm. think, that it did that. So I would say, okay, it has a very tiny little decision space. And maybe that decisions has to do with uh, how it breeds, where it goes, you know, mm-hmm. what it eats. Some of that's hardwired in its genetic system, and some of it it's actually making choices. So that would be a tiny little decision mm-hmm. space. Now, the, the more aware you are, the bigger your decision space. So as you grow up, and like you say, you lived in a little world for a while, and then the world suddenly got bigger. The bigger your world gets, the more decision space you have, the more choices that you have. And that's just the nature of consciousness. So consciousness has these two attributes of awareness and decision space. Now, awareness has some of its own attributes, and that is an awareness – has to have mm-hmm. memory; otherwise, everything it was aware of would always be the first thing. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it couldn't get off a of square one, right? If it didn't have any memory. So, and a, a functional awareness needs to have memory. It also needs to have a purpose. It needs to have some mm-hmm. reason for what it's doing, what it's trying to do. Something that's, you know, if that may just be an evolutionary purpose. Like in, uh, you know, in a in an evolutionary sense, our purpose would be to uh, you know survive and procreate right and that may be our purpose you know it can be a simple purpose but it needs something to kind of direct what it does otherwise whatever it does is random sure you know and if everything it does is random well it never actually gets anywhere it's kind of a useless kind of a useless thing you see so it needs a purse a purpose to give it some direction now Mm -hmm. if it has a purpose it has memory it also has to have some processing Mm -hmm. because it has to know that well i was in state a now i'm in state b which is better which got me closer to my purpose that I'm trying to do, you see. So when your world suddenly got bigger, you had a purpose of understanding, figuring out, is this bigger world real, or am I just really imagining all of that? And then you – that's your first question, right? And then your second question is, well, how big is it, and how is it connected, and, you know, what's – you know, how's the leg bone hooked to the hip bone here, and what are all the things, and how does it interact, and how do I interact with it, and how does it interact with me? And you have all these questions that you need to deal with. So that requires processing so that you can tell whether you're getting closer or further away from your purpose. Right. You have to, and what we would call that processing is thinking. So you, mm-hmm. you uh, you know, now you're just a, a, a simple creature and you just need to procreate and survive and you do something and it makes it harder for you to survive. Well, you realize that was not a good thing to do. And because you can think, you try not to do that anymore. You try to do the things that, that are helpful to you, not the things that are hurtful to you. So anyway, so that's the, that is what consciousness is. It has those attributes of memory, processing, and a purpose. And the consciousness is, but that's just mm-hmm. awareness. Awareness has to have those attributes. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the awareness is dysfunctional. But it also needs the attribute of, of uh, decision space, Otherwise, we're not talking about something that really functions. You can have awareness in a zero decision space, but then you're just aware but don't have any choices. So, so, yes, you you can call that theoretical. You may even say that trees or plants might be like that, you know, if you wanted to, but it's kind of hard to deal with that because there's no way to ask them or any way to, you know, kind of verify that very easily, but... Anyway, it's, you know, it's that sort of thing. But, so that's the sense of what I mean by consciousness. So if it doesn't have any decisions, but if it can't make choices, then it's not sentient. Okay, sentious, sentient means reactive. You can do something and it responds. So if it responds, it needs to be aware, right, that something happened and you did it, and it also needs to make choices of how it's going to respond. So being conscious and being sentient is are you know, right. similar... Similar sorts of things.
1: Okay, and the the next term I was actually I think you defined it pretty well was um, was memory as it as it pertains to human beings understanding um, how our our memory functions and how the the brain functions if you wanted to get into that briefly and then we can start to um, okay, to, to dive to into the theory and, memory, and how brain, all this stuff kind of ties and processing. One another.
0: We have to understand a little about the nature of reality, so I may have to go. back up just a little to do that. Uh, let me make the very uh, uh, sta- a statement that will sound sure. very wild and, and uh, whatever, but it's actually uh, a true statement, and that is that you know we don't have physical bodies or physical brains; we have virtual bodies and virtual brains. We live in a virtual reality. Our reality is information. It's defined by information. And our sense of it being physical is just our um, kind of, it, it's, it's in the mind or in the eye of the observer, if you will. It seems physical to us, okay? So we don't really have a brain that's storing mm-hmm. and processing. The brain stores nothing, processes nothing. Consciousness stores and processes Okay. Consciousness is fundamentally an information system. Okay. Okay? So if consciousness is an information system, and I'll I'll, uh, expand that a little and say a digital information system, um, because that's kind of the way information systems break down, right? You can model anything with a digital information system. So anyway, so it's a digital information system. That's where the processing is. So then what's the brain? What's the body? And how does that function? Certainly... If if I get hit in the head with an iron pipe, me that's going to change how I function. I might lose memory. I may not be able to walk very well anymore because it may damage my brain. Well, doesn't that mean that the brain's in charge and you do have that physical brain and it's in charge? No, you see, that's that's a um, you know, that's an incorrect way of looking at it and here's why. Consciousness Okay, it's an information system, our reality is virtual, and our virtual reality is really a product of consciousness. It's a virtual reality, just like the sims is a virtual reality a same similar kind of thing mm-hmm. okay now in the sims, somebody had to program it, so if there's a blade of grass and a lawn in the sims, somebody had to put that blade of grass there in an equation or or some some other way. Our reality is mm-hmm. a virtual reality, but it wasn't programmed. it evolved. Mm-hmm. It started with some initial conditions, uh, pressure, temperature, size, that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. and it had a rule set of how things Mm -hmm. could change, how energy uh, could be exchanged between things, and then somebody hits the run button and it starts to evolve. In other words, it starts to change. It's a dynamic simulation, so there's a every delta T we see how did it change, and that uh, you know that was what I call the big Mm -hmm. digital bang. So that's how our universe, our virtual universe, got here. It's a simulation. Mm-hmm. Now it evolved, and as it evolved, now we can kind of plug in our, our mm-hmm. sense of the physical evolution. You know, the physical evolution is really the evolution of this, of this uh, virtual simulation, if you will, and that simulation evolved. You know, mm-hmm. cells, one single cells, multi-cells, uh, cell differentiation, you know, critters, lizards, fish, reptiles, and eventually humans. And humans evolved to be what we are today. So that's just how the simulation has evolved. Now, so what does that have to do with consciousness? Well, consciousness uses mm-hmm. these the simulation as the constraints on its virtual reality. Now, here's an example. When you play... World of Warcraft, okay, or Sims, you, your characters, you have an avatar, a Mm -hmm. character, and what is that character? It's really a set of constraints. It tells you what you can do and what you can't do. Your character can only Mm -hmm. jump so high, run so fast, you know, has so many spells, so many hit points. Mm -hmm. It has all these these constraints that basically define how it interacts with its environment. Okay? Now, you... With the, with the joystick or the keyboard sure. and, and the mouse, you're, it's consciousness. You make the decisions. It's your free will that makes the choice, run or fight, uh, do this or do mm-hmm. that, right? Dance or stand still. You, you get, you're the consciousness. Well, it's the same mm-hmm. situation. Consciousness is, is the real thing here. The simulation is virtual, is just information, and the simulation of our body – it has evolved now in this simulation, sets the constraints on this virtual reality. So this consciousness now is playing a character, but the character, instead Mm -hmm. of your elf in World of Warcraft, it's your body, you see? Now, you think that, that, you know, you kind of are your body. You Mm -hmm. and your brain are you, you see? But the elf in World of Warcraft thinks that it's it, too, you see? And the the elf in the World of Warcraft looks around at its map and it sees... That it's physical. Those mountains look physical to that elf. Now, to you, consciousness, you mm-hmm. know that's just being produced as information Good. in a server. But to that elf, that's his physical world. So you see, physical mm-hmm. and non-physical isn't fundamental at all. Right. It's just, it's just in the, uh, um, you know, it's in the mind of the observer. Right. So if if. You are in a virtual reality, that vir- right. as a character, you're playing in a virtual reality. That virtual reality seems physical. The source of that virtual reality, then, is non-physical, which in this case mm-hmm. would be consciousness. So that's the kind of the brain-body thing. Right. What happens when I get hit in the head with an iron pipe is that the physics mm-hmm. of the situation, the, the rule set that I say that, that says how energy exchange and whatever happened, that rule set says, well, the cranium gets crushed, the brain matter gets whatever in this simulation, and that puts constraints. So now my consciousness, playing this character, mm-hmm. my character now has constraints. Right. You see? It can't walk or talk very well anymore because part of its brain mm-hmm. was damaged. So it's it's not that you damaged the brain and the brain mm-hmm. is what's running the show. It's that you've da- this is a virtual brain hit with a virtual lead pipe that broke a virtual skull, created new constraints on that player and you the consciousness now have to abide by those constraints so now your character limps or you know falls over or dies or whatever because those are the constraints calculated by the rule set that drives this you know this this simulation mm-hmm. so that's kind of how all those things fit together
1: so what would um so would ancestral memory would that be um written within the rule set or is that something that gets passed down um, from I guess Well that would from be from the, the you know, history of waves. the actual ancestral
0: memory. I'm not quite sure what I know what you mean by that, but let me take a guess. Some of that could actually be incorporated in our DNA. Some of that we may, you know, make carry along in physical memory in that sense. Now what is DNA? Again, physical—it's virtual. You know, DNA is a virtual thing. It's part of this simulation, if mm-hmm. you will. That's part of what evolved, uh, according to the rule set. You know, working on these initial conditions and evolving. So it can get uh, encoded there for this, this kind of memory. Mm-hmm. And these are the sorts of things that uh, Jung talked about. Mm-hmm. You know, the archetypes. That archetypes were sometimes cultural, sometimes species. Mm-hmm. You know, there can be archetypes that are just basically mm-hmm. human. All humans and all cultures, you know, and no matter what they are, uh, have certain kind of things in common that are archetypes. So that's probably more genetic in its in its memory, genetic memory than it, than it is uh, mm-hmm. intellectual memory. Mm-hmm. So we have we have that memory going on. We also mm-hmm. have memory of the of the system itself. This is a information system. Information stores stuff. That's memory, right? So. All of the sure. things that happen here, there's memory. Mm-hmm. It's like in World of Warcraft, if all the things that you do, there's memory there. The, the World of Warcraft doesn't forget how many hit points you have. It doesn't forget that you just won that battle, and therefore your spells go up or your hit points mm-hmm. go up or whatever. It keeps track of what's going on and who's on first and you know what everything is, and ours is the same way. So our virtual reality has databases, if you will, mm-hmm. that define all of our interactions and have has been doing that now as long as the game's been running which is you know as long as this uh you know virtual reality that we call our physical universe has been evolving so we've got all of this this history in a database and that is available to us because that's a part of consciousness Mm -hmm. and we as the players are consciousness you know we're what i call individuated units of consciousness so we have access to data that's in consciousness Mm -hmm. So that's another source of, of memory. So we get instincts. We can, we can um, get information, query, mm-hmm. these databases, if you will. We get that. That often comes to us as intuition. You know, what is this mm-hmm. intuition, and where does it come from? Well, for the, a lot of times it's just us connecting to the larger database, you know, in this larger conscious system. That's part of what we can do, and we can use that as intuition. Now, some people say they don't have any intuition or don't believe in it or it doesn't make any mm-hmm. sense. Well, it's one of these things that it's a use it or lose it kind of thing. If in your mind you say, that's stupid, there's no such thing as intuition, that's just mush-headed you know, people. You know, imagine they have intuition, then no, you will never experience <laughs> intuition. Because if you did get some sort of blast of intuition, you'd write it off. You'd say, oh, that was just dumb luck or that really didn't happen or you know, you'd blow it off. Those people sure. who work with it and develop it and are open to it, then obviously have a lot more opportunity to be familiar with, with it and what it is and, you know, how it exists. So, it's, uh, you know, it's not something that is always the same for everybody. This is developmental and evolutionary. So we're all here uh, kind of in a different state, all walking around in mm-hmm. our own unique Reality, but it's a multiplayer game, so we're all you know interacting at the at the same time.
1: Mm-hmm. So, um, from from my experience, and I, I guess I kind of am in a unique situation. I had an out of body experience when I was nine. I actually drowned, and um, the best way that I could ever describe the experience that I had is that when people used to ask me like what is it like and i said well all that i can tell you is that your consciousness right. and i didn't even understand what that term meant i had my own rudimentary understanding of what it was right. that your your experiences your decision making all of that stuff goes somewhere else where do where does it go i have no idea but i knew that once i left my physical body that it wasn't it that wasn't the it that wasn't the end game is what i used to tell people so my perception was a little bit I, I guess, skewed from the time that I was very young, but then I ran into belief systems and, um, and I guess, um, social social traps to where I, I sort of mm-hmm. shrank that down and, and, once again, I guess, lowered my decision space. And that was going to be my next question. Um, do belief systems yes, put absolutely. constraints um, on you know, people's few,
0: decision space? There are a few things that are the big problems, you know, to our growth and evolution in this uh, consciousness system. And... You know, the biggest, of course, is fear, and out of fear uh, comes two things, and one of them is ego, and the other is belief. Belief generally, as a basis Mm -hmm. in fear, now it's not necessary. We can probably come up with an exception to that, but basically, belief is a is a uh, you know is derived from fear. You come to a belief because you really want to know something, or you feel some. You have to fill in a a hole somewhere in your understanding, and you don't have the information, but you can't stand the fact that it's a hole and that you don't right. know the information. You want that hole to be filled in in some nice, comfy way that makes you feel good, so you come up with a belief that fills that bill. But I, in my books, I have the term belief trap. And uh, belief is a trap because if you okay. believe something, you're no longer open to the idea that it's something else. That, that there's more information out there. You tend to to discount anything that is in dissonance with your with your beliefs. So you just don't go there because that's not what you believe, you know, is there. So that's mm-hmm. a problem. That that's a trap. That's a a limitation. So I would put mm-hmm. that you know, I had some people ask me, says, Well, aren't there any good beliefs, you know, are all these beliefs, belief traps, are they all bad beliefs? And my answer to that was, well, if it's something that's really significant then yes, the belief has a negative side to it. You know, the belief isn't there. You should. You know, my my thing is that that mm-hmm. I tell people. I said the only way to go through life is with open-minded skepticism. You must be open-minded. You've got to keep your mind open, or you'll never be able to see any new data. You never would have seen a bigger reality if you weren't open-minded. You would have looked at it and said, "Nah, that's not the way it was described to me. It's not like that," and. You have to be open-minded, but at the same time, you have to be skeptical. Everything you should be skeptical of, unless it's, unless it's your experience, it cannot be your truth. You see, if it's not your truth, then, then uh, you know you, you need to keep it in, yeah, that, in that area of "I'm not sure." Rather than jump to a belief, either pro mm-hmm. or against, you need to be open-minded and say, "Well, mm-hmm. maybe. I give that a .01 probability, but don't make it a zero. Be open-minded. Or I give that a .9999 because that seems really good, but don't give it a one. Always keep a little margin of open-mindedness, and you should have very, very few ones and zeros in your sense of what is. They should mostly be numbers really a little distance away from ones and zeros because Unless you believe that you're omniscient and know everything, you have to keep a mind open for new data. You don't know everything, and there will be new data. And when you get that new data, when you run into right. it, number one, you want to recognize it. You want to grab it, and you want to inspect it, and you want to look at it and see, is this useful? Can I use this new data? Does it help me any? Does it solve any of my you know problems, any of my outstanding uh, requirements for data? And if it does, then you want to use it. If it doesn't, well, you let it go. Say, well, it's, it maybe you sure. helped somebody, but, you know, it's, it's not, I'm not ready to use that yet or it doesn't yeah. mean anything to me. And you let it go. And then 10 years later, you may get that same piece of data. And now it may mean something to you that it didn't then, you see. So you don't, uh, you have to always stay open. But as long as you're open-minded and skeptical, you will always land on your feet. You're not going to be led down anybody's, you know, uh, primrose path uh, you know imagining that things are something they're not that's that's kind of the prescriptions that's how you keep your sanity in this world
2: mm-hmm. of
0: that's very difficult to understand and very difficult to get your 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 arms around you know if you if you're not open-minded and skeptical you'll very quickly either yeah. self-destruct or you know go off uh off the deep end someplace
1: right right Or create a giant ego and not let anything come into your ego space where I hear people say all the time when you would present them with facts or information about what really exists in this reality Um, as far as – you know, I used to be very politically involved, and I used to go and explain to people, this is what you are hearing, and this is reality, and they would say, well, I choose not to believe that when what I would present them with was facts, and so what they were doing was basically – Walling off and small um, shrinking their decision space, saying that I'm taking whatever data you have. I'm ignoring that because I've got other sure, data, because, that that. data that conflicts so with that. the I'm they going to say this is the makes data. Feel
0: safe and warm and comfy, and feeling warm and comfy is more important than learning right. something new. You know, to most mm-hmm. people. So that's you know that's what you get. There's this there's this other thing that I say besides always stay open minded and skeptical, and that is you you have to learn to deal with uncertainty. You have, to, you have to deal with uncertainty gracefully, you see, because most people are afraid of uncertainty. They get into a situation they don't know. Well, is this true or is that true? Is this guy telling me the truth or is he giving me another bunch of BS? You know, or maybe it's all BS and you don't know. And the, mo- the average person, when he doesn't know, looks for a belief to, jo- you know, to grab hold of so that now he can he can dispense with that you know he knows now he has a belief you see, but you have to be able to live gracefully with uncertainty so that you have all of these things that are not ones and zeros and that's okay you just let them hang there as things you're looking for more data for and go on Mm -hmm. with your life most people don't like uncertainty uncertainty is fearful it makes them nervous and they reach for a belief or they just shut things out because the uncertainty is cold and prickly and the belief is warm and snuggly and cozy
1: yeah that's a really good that's a really great way to put it and i think that a lot of our society struggles with um with a fear based society that we that we live in and i think that it's a it's it's a it's a microcosm or um i guess it it's a microcosm of what we were talking about the the ego needs to to have this justification that I have all the answers. And once the ego fills up with I have all the answers and this is the, this is the correct perception, then you run into a society that can, once again, create a belief system that's based on in, inaccurate data and then shun basically anything that conflicts with that the data stream that they're getting because they've already made up a predetermined uh, dogma, if you will, of, of what this is going to be and what reality truly is. So moving um, moving forward, let's. Um, I would like to to spend a little time talking about um, just the two slit experiment and, and why that's so important for people to to understand the the measurable um, science as well as um, what happens when, when science is not measured and, and the difference and the the um, I guess the variable that comes into play. When we're when we're talking about something that is supposedly proven, like science is, it, it is proven. Yes. It is fact. Um, when the double slit um, experiment is it a very can be very subjective um,
0: key experiment in in the history of, of physics, and will probably always remain so because it's it's one of the first times that scientists, with their uh, very uh, careful logical process, got to the point that their answers, mm-hmm. their science, told them that physical reality isn't at all the way we thought it was. You know, what's at the basis here? What's underlying this is really something very squarely. It's not what we thought. And that's they, they kind of got to the first point where they ran mm-hmm. into reality is information. That's where they first ran into that. And, of course, um, that experiment mm-hmm. has been done thousands of times you know by hundreds and hundreds of different people you know it's not so easy that you can set it up in your know, your on your kitchen table it takes a little money and a little high-cost precision instruments but it's been done in probably every major university on the planet because it is such a fundamental experiment that everybody wants to see it for themselves it's one of these seeing is believing you know so it's it's probably been done more than any other experiment ever and what and if you listen to the quantum mechanics um, community and um, let's just pick out Richard Feynman because he was one of the best of the best mm-hmm. uh, theoretical quantum physicists and Richard Feynman um, is quoted in okay. several several things one, talking to his students he, says, he said when his students asked Dr. Feynman what's going on here? What, you know, this doesn't make sense, what's happening? Dr. Feynman said just shut up and calculate In other words, nobody knows. I can't tell you what's going on here. Mm -hmm. We don't know what's going on here, but we can calculate and get the right answer. You see, so quantum mechanics is a mathematical process by which one gets right answers, Mm -hmm. not something that we understand and take that understanding, you know, and and derive to understanding the answer. We don't understand, you know, the answers either, but we know how to compute them. So Mm -hmm. the other thing Dr. Feynman said is that nobody will ever understand how quantum mechanics works. And, uh, you know, of course, that's that's kind of a a small view, right, ever, you know, but that's the way they feel because they don't understand it and it doesn't seem to make any sense and it hasn't for a long time. Quantum mechanics and double slit has its origin in the very early 1900s, you know, 1915, 1920. That's when most of this research was done. And the physicists Mm -hmm. at that time... We're just floored by it, you know, um, I think it was Bohr has a quote, something, uh, um, you know, if quantum mechanics doesn't totally amaze you, or doesn't, you know, in our vernacular, it doesn't totally blow you away, then you just don't understand it, you know, that was a, not really a quote, I kind of made, put that in our own language, but that's the sense Mm -hmm. of it, so we had all this going on, and the physicists then knew that they had uncovered A, v- a view of reality that was just totally at odds with what we thought was there. Well, now we're some almost 80 years later. Sure. We don't know anything more about it than we did then. Matter of fact, we've regressed mm-hmm. some because we've had this attitude, and nobody will ever know, uh, just shut up and calculate. So the idea of really thinking about what does it mean mm-hmm. and what's going on here and how does sure. reality work, that's all been pushed off into the corner as that's not really worth our time because nobody will ever figure that out. Just shut up and calculate. And quantum mechanics has been a great success as a, as a theory of how to calculate, you know, uh, what the, the world's going to show, you know, at the end of an experiment. They're very yeah. good at that. But they haven't made any progress because they really haven't tried. They haven't thought about it much because in their mm-hmm. mind of physicists today, it's just intractable. Well, what it says, what quantum mechanics, what was telling them, is that reality is just information. This physical reality doesn't really exist as a matter physical reality. You know, this universe is information. And what happened is that they had you know, they had a um, well, do you want me to go through a little bit of double slit or is that just going to be too much for your listeners to to, to grasp in a in a verbal description?
1: Well, I uh Let's let's do this. I will um I'll put a link to the part of your lecture that where you go over the double split experiment and I'll kinda of chop the lecture up so we can put that in there so that people if you want to reference the the experiment that we're talking about, um you <laughs> yeah. can you so can read it and go take big two big because your head will probably show
0: us that reality but, uh is information. It doesn't work the way we it's not mass and charge and you know, it, it's not this massy little you know, particle. Mm-hmm. Reality. But we, we continue to, to believe that it is anyway, because that mm-hmm. still makes sense to us. The last time that scientists really understood what they were doing was with Newton. Right. And we haven't left that yet. We still have kind of a Newtonian attitude mm-hmm. toward reality, but we're, our math can calculate you know, more modern mm-hmm. science that shows us that, that reality is, is just information. Now, fortunately, the physicists now are coming to that realization. They have twisted and turned. It's like had to be, you know, drugged, you know, kicking and screaming, you know, to that fact, that reality is information. But now that they have been drugged there, it's becoming a very popular view. Um, When I wrote my books a decade ago, as far as I knew, myself and two other people on the planet said, this is a virtual reality, reality Mm -hmm. is information. And now... I see panels of top-notch physicists discussing uh-huh. virtual reality, you know, on YouTube, you know, at the at the physics symposiums. So it's a it's a thing that yep. is realized. Now, I I was watching a, a mm-hmm. YouTube um, uh, talk, a guy who was at CERN um, doing uh, physics there. This is one of the researchers, and he was mm-hmm. being interviewed, and his explanation. Somebody asked him about, well, what you know, what are these these electrons, these particles you're trying to see. And the guy said, well, wait a minute. He says, first of all, now we don't really look at electron as a little chunk of mass you know, that has a charge attached to it. That was the old look. He says, now we look at electron as a point, and it has the property sure. of charge and the property of right. mass. We don't say it has mass and has charge. Mm-hmm. It's just a point mm-hmm. that has these properties assigned to that point. Well, what does that sound like? If you were going to if you were going to do a computer simulation of an electron, what would it be? It would be a point with properties. you see that's what it is so it's physics has gotten to the point yeah. that reality is just information. it's not mass with charge. you know what is charge? Well, it finds out it's just a property you know it's it's uh information so as the scientists are being drugged to that um there's something real interesting going to happen in the, in the near future that uh, is, I'm kind of um, waiting for. And that is that once you get to the concept that this is a virtual reality, <laughs> that this is just information, it's a computed reality like, like the Sims. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. It's just a reality like the Sims. It's computed. Then sure. the question is, well, yeah. where's the server? Who's the programmer? You see? That's the thing that's why scientists don't want to go there. Right. They don't really want to deal with those questions because those questions aren't in their view part mm-hmm. of science. Those questions are religion or metaphysics or something else. They're bogus. They're the things that mushhead people, you know, concern themselves with. Not scientists, but yet here their science is taking them mm-hmm. to the fact that this is a mm-hmm. virtual reality based on information, a computed reality. And you can't escape the fact that mm-hmm. then comes the question, you know, where's the server and who's the programmer? Where does this come from? What's the source? Because it's a, you know, it's a three-year-old logical problem that a simulation cannot compute itself. You know, it doesn't happen. You know, it doesn't exist. You know, mm-hmm. before it exists, it doesn't exist to compute itself. You know, so it's, that's trivial. You know, you, uh, so. Logic says it cannot just compute itself. It's not like, well, there was none and then there was one. Well, that's called mysticism, right? Scientists don't go there. You know, mysticism's the enemy, mm-hmm. right? That's uh, that's what they. Great. That's how they made their reputation: is facing down you know mystics back in the you know sixteen
1: seventeen hundreds. So. Uh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna disappear. Right. Watch so this, you see, that's you know. the problem hey, why science unless has you been picking you know, and screaming,
0: being dragged right. to this, is they mm-hmm. don't really want to go there because the next step takes them 180 degrees away from what they've always stood for for the last, you know, since science was science. So that's the big problem. So it's mm-hmm. not an easy paradigm to, mm-hmm. you know, to shift. But yet all their experiments and all the things they do keep slapping them in the face saying, hey, listen. Reality is just computed. It's virtual. It's information. And so sooner or later, they're going to have to say, yes, it's information, Mm -hmm. but don't talk to me about that, you know, where it's coming from, you know. It's like, shut up and calculate. You know, we don't want to go there. So eventually it will have to go there. And when you say, you know, well, where's it computed and who's the programmer? Well, one, there isn't really a programmer like the Sims. Like I said, it just evolved. It's a simulation that has evolved simulations do that you know it's a dynamic simulation and as things change the way things interact change and the way things interact change then more things change so it it evolves based on its rule set so it doesn't have a little old man in a white beard you know sitting at the desk at his computer doing the programming you see so we don't get to that conclusion it just evolved but the answer to it and they aren't going to get there immediately but the answer to it is consciousness is the computer Consciousness is the, the um, data system. Consciousness, you know, is the information system. And consciousness has created this virtual reality to serve its own purpose. You know, it has its own reasons for doing this. And here we are in the virtual reality. We're individuated mm-hmm. units of consciousness, and we're playing in this virtual reality game for a reason that, you know, serves a purpose. There's a point and there's a purpose to our, you know, playing the game. So anyway, that's I'm looking forward to watching those two shoes drop. One the one the you know, Fredkin who first was the first guy to consider he's a physicist, a good physicist, you know. You'd even say a high powered physicist, Dr. Edward Fredkin, and back in the late nineteen nineties he wrote some papers about guess what folks, this is a virtual reality based on information mm-hmm. and everybody still respected him but he was kind of ignored. And that went on he was one of the three people that I knew of that thought, our reality might have been virtual mm-hmm. 10 years ago when I wrote, when I wrote the, my books. But anyway, um, you know, he calls it other, because he got to that point, and he says, mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, I don't know where it comes from. I don't know how it's being computed, but I can tell it's information. It's being computed. That's a fact. Get over it, and it's just in other. So that was his point. You know, I, I don't need to go there. But you see, once, and that's where science will first go. They will first define this other and refuse to go there. But the rest of the world is not going to let them not go there because everybody else is going to go there, whether they go or not. Mm -hmm. Everybody else is going to say, all right, science has just told us that there's something larger and grander and a a reality of which we are derived from it. We're computed, and there's some other grander reality Mm -hmm. out there that's non-physical to us because a thing can't compute itself, you know, and – that's not going to be untouched. The rest of the world isn't going to sit around and say, oh, well, it's just other, let's not go there, we don't really know. You know, We're going to have a big food fight over that one, and uh, the food fight will start with religions. Oh, I told you so all along, you know, yeah, if God did it, and so on. God's the programmer. Oh, we'll have all of this food fight because now you have the science actually verifying that this larger reality must exist or we couldn't be here as a virtual reality Mm. because a virtual reality cannot compute itself. So that'll be a big hoorah. Hopefully it won't get too violent. Hopefully it won't get too crazy. Mm. But that will go on for a while until the light bulb goes Mm. off that says, oh, consciousness is the computer. So that's like step two. Step one is other. This is a virtual reality, and it's Mm. done in other. And then I don't know how many years we'll have to be shooting at each other over that. Then next we'll get to, oh, consciousness is the computer. And once we get to that, then hopefully things will get a little more sane again and we can begin to make progress. But, see, that's kind of that's coming. There's, uh, these are big paradigm shifts. And now a paradigm shift doesn't take place among a group of 25 scientists, like it did back when the double slit experiment first came about. You see, there was 20 or 30 scientists that even knew that that existed and were working that. And publish some papers, and then eventually, probably ten or twenty years later, maybe there was a hundred scientists, but the rest of the world had no idea. Still has no idea. You ask the person in the street, "What's the double slit experiment about?" And they'll go, "Huh? What? Well, no. You see?" So, but that's not the case anymore. Now we are in the information yeah. age. We have the internet. We have ways of communicating these things all over the place. There'll mm-hmm. still be a lot of people who don't care, but there's also going to be a lot of people who mm-hmm. do care. And who do look at it and who do get interested and do want to know what in the hell is this other mm-hmm. you're talking about? You know, how does that affect me? What am I then? I'm just a virtual <laughs> body, you know, I'm a character, I'm an avatar in somebody's game? Mm-hmm. Come on, you know. You know, where does that you know, so you're gonna have all of this stuff going mm-hmm. on and that's coming because science is being pushed up against the wall to admit that this is a computed virtual reality. All their experiments tell them that. Well, then it can't be computed here. It has to be elsewhere. And where is elsewhere? Oh, that's right. other. Well, what's other? <sighs> it's a big paradigm shift. And where you have right. huge paradigm shifts, you often have a lot of turmoil. Right. You know, when we went from the ag- you know ag- agrarial age into the into the sure. you know uh, you know the age of machines, right? The industrial age. Look at all the turmoil we had. You know, we had people out bashing machines. You know, who were you know mm-hmm. trying to stop evil from taking over the world, and et cetera, et cetera. Well, this is a paradigm shift that's bigger than any of those, yep. or all of those put together, as far as, as science goes. That's uh, that's happening in the <laughs> sometime in the in the near future, for perhaps. But that's one of the reasons why I'm up. You know talking and doing my books and doing all this stuff, because hopefully there'll be a more sane answer that makes sense that can bypass a lot of the you know a lot of the screaming and shouting that's gonna take place and a lot of the food fight that's gonna take place you know first
1: mhm i agree and and that's one of the things that actually um when we were doing my radio show last night, I was talking to a couple of um Political activists, and and we we understand that there's there's a, a different shift coming um, from a political realm, and and understanding that you know there's two ways that it can go. It can go through a it can go through a mental um, awakening and, and a mental acceptance, or it can be like you said, it can be physical. And so what what my job I feel is to educate people or to at least expose them to the information, expose them to the data. Let them take it on for themselves if they like what they hear. If they want to uh, gain more knowledge, then I'll point them in a the direction to gain more knowledge in order for them to you know, raise their decision space and also come to fundamental answers that, that are nonviolent. And that's, in essence, what we're trying to prove here. Now, here's one thing that I wanted to transition to. There is, I, I see where the trends are going and what you're talking about with the, with the complete paradigm shift. And what I see are the paradigm is shifting in little segments where people will accept little bits and pieces of the theory. They won't accept the, the entire I, I thing. I know about like, it. I have Take the secret, for example. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever read the book or seen the video. Yeah. So just a, just a brief um, – the there's a couple of things wrong with it because it doesn't pertain to natural law. But it it, it poses this theory that if you consciously believe something – And you believe it really thoroughly and you almost like wish it and you you just focus on it and focus on being happy and target that goal, then that goal will eventually arise. And so putting that into your theory, in essence what they're doing is they're just putting more of the probable outcome of it being positive into the decision space so when they pull from that random cue, then they're actually having a, a better probability of something good happening. And, and I, I guess that that's kind of a rudimentary way of explaining it, but um, let's go into decision space and how that and how that, <laughs> okay, and how that yeah. kind of ties into One what the, I tried to basically well, butcher. But we are in this
0: virtual reality. I mentioned we have these these databases available, and I mentioned history. You know, all the stuff that has happened is is there. Well, there's another database called the probable future. Okay, it's a database and. Yes, the probable sure. future looks at everything.
1: Kind of like choose your own adventure happen, in a book, right?
0: And the probability, you know, that it might happen. Okay, so, you know, this is a finite universe, so it's a big calculation, but you can look at all the mm-hmm. things that might happen. And, of course, we don't have to worry about trivial things, you know. Well, might I scratch my head with my right hand or might that be with my left hand? You know, that's not really a big question in the big scheme of things, so those sorts of details are sh- sloughed over. We don't, we don't have to do everything, but when I say everything that might, you know, everything significant let's kind of put it that way and significant is just smart software so anyway so we have this future probable database of everything that could happen and the probability that it might happen now as time clicks on things actually do happen right and they happen in the present and that's where all the action is that's where free will makes its choices in their decision Mm -hmm. space, just in the present and then afterwards that becomes history sure but now we have two sets of history. We have the history of what we actually did, our history thread. Mm-hmm. Plus we have, from that same database that was the future probable mm-hmm. base, we, now we have everything that could have happened but didn't happen, and the probability that it might have, even though it didn't. So we have all that mm-hmm. data. And because the purpose of sure. this virtual reality mm-hmm. is to serve as a, as a schoolhouse for consciousness evolution, Uh, You want a good school has feedback. You have to give the students feedback. Mm
2: -hmm. And
0: one of the feedback mechanisms we have is that our intent Mm -hmm. can modify the probability in that future probability database. Okay? So if there's something that has a, you know, a very high probability Mm -hmm. of happening and you use your intent to lower that, you can probably lower that probability sum or you can raise that probability sum based Mm -hmm. on your intent. Now, if, if, there, if you want to raise it and somebody else wants to lower it, now you have competing mm-hmm. intents that are doing something. And if both of you give it the exact same amount of oomph, then nothing will happen, right? You cancel each other out, which is the way the world works. You have lots of people that want to go right. Some of the people want to go left. Some of the people want mm-hmm. to stay in the center. And eventually, it, you know, you go somewhere, right? It, it works out with all the people pushing and pulling that uh, it ends up, decisions happen, life goes on, and it goes somewhere. Well, that's the way this is. So we do have that as a, as a feedback mechanism. That's how, um, you know, that's how the placebo effect works. You know, the doctor mm-hmm. says, oh, you're going to get well. This is a wonderful new medicine. And the patient says, oh, great. Wow, I was lucky. I just happened to got here just as this new medicine was available. And da, 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 da. Now you have positive intent. So the probability of him being ill tomorrow, that's still in the future, goes down, you see and as long as he has that positive scent but it works just as well the other way sure oh right. no you know I, i'm sure that this lump you know in my neck is cancer i'm mm-hmm. sure that, that, that you know have all this negative stuff and the doctor looks at it and says oh that does not look good you know then the mm-hmm. probability that that is going to be mm-hmm. cancer when they finally look at it goes up so you can modify the probabilities in any in any direction so that is sure. a that does work that way but it's not just Belief, remember? There is no good belief. And it's not just wishing. It's intent. And intent can be focused or it can be scattered. Mm -hmm. Intent can be strong or it can be weak. Mm -hmm. You can wish very, very hard and believe very, very hard, and your intent may be nothing. You see, you don't get intent just by wishing and believing. The two of them could be coupled, Mm -hmm. but they don't have to be. You see, intent has to do Mm -hmm. with a focused Consciousness, a focused awareness on a particular outcome or a particular thing happening. Now, if most of us have uh, our minds are very scattered, we have things going on all the time. There's little thoughts jump here and there. We don't stay on a single sure. thought very long. You know, they they've done some research that says that if you sit and listen to somebody lecture, you'll get about thirty percent of what they say. And the reason you only get thirty percent is your mind's flying around in all kinds of directions, having thoughts doing sure. all sorts of things. And you only are really sampling what's going on in front of you, you know, with the lecture. And you're sampling everything else. So we tend to sample. We just very quickly sample all sorts of things all the time. Sure. And that gives us a very scattered intent. That's why meditation mm-hmm. comes into this process. That's why meditation and, and uh, uh, kind of connects now to metaphysics, which connects to physics. You know, all these things get connected In a logical way, because all meditation is is practice Mm -hmm. collecting your thoughts and holding them still so they're not all flying around. Well, in that case, you have a lot more of your awareness focused on a single thing. You can have a lot bigger effect on that thing. No matter how hard you wish or how hard you believe, it's really intent that, that makes the difference And meditation is just okay. a tool. You don't have to meditate, but it's just a tool to help you learn how to quiet your mind down, get rid of all the noise and focus it mm-hmm. on a single thing and hold it with that focus. So that's really all you know, meditation accomplishes. It's, it's that skill that you learn how to do that. So people who have strong, mm-hmm. focused intents can have a fairly decent effect of modifying the probability. But that doesn't mean they can make anything happen they want. You see, what if the probability is one in a million that A is going to happen? Well, they may use their intent, and, and they may have a very, very strong intent, and they may change one in mm-hmm. a million to just one in 100,000. Jeez, they've gone through three orders of magnitude. That's phenomenal. That's a lot of mm-hmm. intent. It still isn't going to happen. <laughs> you see, it's still, sure. it's still, you know, one in 100,000. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean you'll always get what you want. It depends on... How improbable or how probable right. was it? You can make things that are very probably maybe not be so probable, too. So that's the, that's the placebo effect. You know, that's how, uh, you know, that's how the, uh, the um, you know, the witch doctor, uh, you know, does his, does his magic. You know, it all has to do with intent and getting people to have a positive or negative intent along with you. Then,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, things happen. Jeez, we knew that back in 1957. Norman Vincent Peale wrote, what is it, uh, The Power of Positive Thinking. Mm-hmm. This is all back in the 50s, you know. This, is, this has been known kind of forever. And basically mm-hmm. it's obvious that people who are real positive and have positive attitudes and, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, you know, things are going to be great. I'm going to get a good job and all this, they generally have much more <laughs> positive experiences. And things just happen to work out for them. And the sad sacks that spend all of their time whining and complaining and life sucks and right. I never get any breaks. They never get any breaks and yeah, their life does suck. You know, we can agree. Well, they, mm-hmm. you make your reality come true in several ways. And one of those ways is with your intent. You actually bias the reality mm-hmm. to be in a way you want it. Mm-hmm. So when you look at, you know, when you, when you look at the, the TV and you pull in the mm-hmm. news and you see, you know, all the wars and the rioting and the ego and, and the greed and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, well, why is it like that? Because that's the way we are. You see, it's not like that because some evil people are doing evil things in the world. Well, Mm -hmm. that may be true, but those evil people are like us. You see, you take one of those evil people that's uh, doing evil things in the world at a high level, pull them out, just grab up somebody random off the street and put them in that position, won't make a damn bit of difference. It'll go on just the way it did before because that's the way we are. We are full of fear and full of ego and belief mm-hmm. and that's why we live in the place that we live in now it's mm-hmm. because of the reality we live in is a very accurate um rendition very accurate model of who we are as you know as a race as human beings this is who this is what we are this is the level at which we function so that's what we get and when we function at a more productive level as we lower right. our entropy as we gain quality in our consciousness, then the world we live in will be a better place. So that kind of mm-hmm. gets you to, you have mentioned activism, that kind of gets you to a point right. of, well, where really is the, is the lever that you want to push to make things better? Well, go look in the mirror. It's you. You see? You're the lever that mm-hmm. has to make things better. Mm-hmm. You improve the quality mm-hmm. of your consciousness. You grow yep. up, you become love, mm-hmm. and you'll make the whole world just slightly better place. That's the mm-hmm. that's the way it works and you can go out there and say, "Well, it's right. not me. All right, I have a lot of ego and I'm this and I'm that and I got all this fear, but it's those people. They're the problem, you know. Let's go get them. If we can tear them down, then everything will be better. If we can just change that system, that system will just reassert itself. You can take all the people who are in the top, you know, 1,000 jobs on the planet, you know, right. eliminate all of them. And it won't make a damn bit of difference. In 10 years, it'll be exactly the way it was before because mm-hmm. it's, it's the way we are. It's not the individual. So you can go out and, and stand on the ramparts and, you know, and, and eliminate the bad guys that are causing the problem, but it doesn't actually fix anything. It just makes you feel better because now you're out there, you know, beating the, beating the evil ones, and you kind of feel like a hero. <laughs> but you're not doing a damn thing to actually fix the problem. If you mm-hmm. actually went home and said, you know, yeah. I need to get rid of all this angst. I need to get rid of all my anger. I need to get rid of all, you know, this fear and stuff that I have all the time, because when you have that fearful, angry attitude, guess what? You help produce a fearful, angry world in the future, you see? So that's, you know, mm-hmm. that's kind of the way all that works. If we just work on ourselves, then our, our light will shine and will influence other people which will influence other people and i know that sounds like ah oh, that'll never make any mm-hmm. difference you got to go to where it is but that's the only thing that will make a difference because the problem isn't in the system the problem isn't the form of your economy or the form of your government it's not the people that are in it the problem is a low quality of consciousness and until you solve that problem anything else that you do is just rearranging the chairs on the mm-hmm. deck of the titanic it's not going to make any difference, you see, in the long term. It may make a difference for a little while, but it will tend to revert back to the way it is because that's the way it is. It represents sure. us. So you have to start with yourself because you are the only person that you can cause to grow up. You can't make anybody else grow up, which is really a good thing. You can only make yourself grow up. So that's where you have to start. Right. And if you could raise the quality of consciousness in the population, the the institutions would take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. They would be kinder. They would be gentler. They would be caring. They would be interested in, in what they That's could do right. to help rather than how much could they grab for themselves. You change the quality of consciousness and the rest of it will all fall into place. You don't right. have to change it. It'll become the, the kind of thing you want it to be. If you try to make it be that way by force, all you'll do is perpetuate it as it is. If you can If you can make that change by changing the quality at the core that it represents, then you've got a change that will last forever. And you won't have to mm-hmm. go rearrange things. They'll rearrange themselves to represent that kinder, gentler you know, environment of the people that are in it. So that's the, you know, it's kind of a very fundamental, yep. very simple thing that uh, lets us know exactly what we need to do to go out and change the world. We need to change ourselves. We need to grow up.
1: But isn't that just natural law itself, and, and the fact that if if I am a if I am a moral person and and I operate within the parameters of the system and don't cause any harm to others, then and if everybody abides by that simple moral um you know the moral parameters and the moral imperative that we that we could set into place that that like you said the power centers would come down and all of these different things would actually come and start to evolve because. We just need to understand um, fundamental principles of what it's, what it's about to be a good human being. And like you said, and this is one of the things that we argue about all the time um, on, on on my show, and not really argue, but we try to beat the drum about, is that when you remove people from power, it, it sure. creates a power vacuum, which typically gets filled with people of the same ideas or people of the same ego. Eth- so you're not really doing anything to to say that you hate the system or to say that you know we need to you know, we need to destroy capitalism or communism those those are all word games in order to create fear and animosity towards a, another another race of people that are two thousand miles away that don't care any more about you know you than than you do but it, it, that didn't make any sense they don't care any less about you than you do you know most of them are have you know have empathy and they have they have families and so they're trying to do the same thing in this reality space that we live in. So you get into this point of, well, how do we do it? And one of our philosophies is you withdraw from the system and you create your own system and you create a better system with you know, communities and smaller organizations and, and, and helping one another. And that's what it's really going to take. And I guess that, that would be lowering our entropy as a species. As a, as a would species. that be a fair
0: statement? But it's not just withdraw from the system withdrawing from the system is okay you know that's a good thing to do because that then creates an alternative and if you create alternatives then you can you're showing people how it can be different because you have an alternative so that's a good thing to do but it's not necessary you can stay in the system and be a voice be a be a nudge for change for growing up you can talk to people Mm -hmm. If everybody leaves the system then the system is going to continue to grind on and probably get worse and worse because all the more level-headed you know, good minds have left it. Well, it's probably not that practical to think that things work that way. Basically, mm-hmm. you can stay in the system, but always be nudging that system to a better solution than what it's got. Mm-hmm. Be the voice of reason. Nobody may listen to you. They may say, oh, yeah, you're a muddy-headed idiot. You don't know anything. But it does. It sticks. It's another thought in their mind, even if it's counter to their beliefs. And it does help. And if you get enough people doing that, you know, it really does help. i was reminded of a, of a thing I just watched, a, a movie. It was called The Butler. I don't know if you've seen The Butler yet, but it's a story about this man who was the butler to, the, mm-hmm. to presidents, starting from um, uh, just before Eisenhower, I think for a very mm-hmm. short time, but really from Eisenhower through uh, Reagan. He was the butler, and he went through all those administrations, and we have mm-hmm. one scene it was kind of a race sure. thing going on. We have one scene where the where a, a young black guy, the, the, the son of this father, this butler, um, you know, he's very embarrassed that his father's a butler because that's like, you know, an Uncle Tom job, you know, he's waiting on the white man, this sort of thing. But uh, Martin he talks to Martin Luther King in this picture and Martin Luther King mm-hmm. says, "No, your father is providing a wonderful mm-hmm. service because he has integrity. He has you know whatever and he's in the halls of power mm-hmm. and he is showing he's an example that you know we as a race we have integrity we have feelings we have families we care you know we are good solid people and he just by being a good solid person is making as much difference mm-hmm. as we are out here on the on the ramparts you know uh, in you know having sit-ins and and doing other things he's having a, his own impact in his own way So he didn't leave the experiment. He isn't out demonstrating. He's actually serving people as a butler, but he's leaving a very positive image of himself and his family and his race with those people of power. So, you know, it was pointed out that that being in the system and working within the system isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, you're not to be tarnished because you're doing that as long as you Mm -hmm. have quality. If you have quality of consciousness, then you are going to help turn that system around. Not all by yourself, but you and everybody else with quality of conscience in that system mm-hmm. will help tame that system. And if you, the problem with if everybody leaves the system to find the counter system, now you start an us against them, and pretty soon you're back to violence. You're back mm-hmm. to, well, those guys think they've got something better. Right. We'll just crush them, you see. And, oh, those guys are going to crush us, then we need to fight. We need military. And you're back, you've just recreated another, you know, fear versus fear, violence begets violence kind of a situation. So it's not that we separate ourselves as much. That's not bad. We have some people do that. It needed the son on the ramparts doing the sit-ins. That was important. But it was also important for the dad to be in there, you know, with his high quality of consciousness. So we need everybody. It just doesn't matter really where you are. You can do whatever it is you do. But do it with quality. Do it with integrity. Do it with caring and with love, and you will help change things. That's just the nature of it. And if the whole system kind of just morphs from one to the other, that is the optimum way it it goes. You know, the concept that, well, we'll go make an alternative, and eventually everybody will run over and join our alternative. won't work that way. You make an alternative, and that alternative starts to compete with the old system. Now you've got Mm -hmm. violence. Now you're back into the, you know, Let's duke it out, yep. and what happens is now in your alternative system, who begins to take over and rise up in your right. alternative system? The, the people gravitate toward violence and domination and big egos. <laughs> so people what have you done? Your movement now, you know, started out, you know, sweet and light, sweetness sweet. and light turns into warriors because that's what's needed because they're going to be beaten up mm-hmm. on the others. So see, it just so you can't have sure. that that really that separation that whole thing has to work together or it's just going to devolve more quickly you know back into chaos again if 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 you don't so that's kind of the the bigger picture of how you how we go about changing things is we just change ourselves
2: right
1: and that's a and that's a really good point to make because when i when I meant in withdrawal from the system, sure it's um I guess it, it was withdrawal my consent from the system um when thinking about you know certain things, and I probably should have specified that but but that is an argument that goes around um in in the in the political realm that I run in is that people are just like, well, just get off the grid and do this and do that and uh, if you if you wanted to go to um if you wanted to go to something is as simple as um, um, uh, a New World order written back you know back in the 1960s, that's what they talked about. They were going people were going to leave the system and go live off in the reservation, and oh, they'll be easily hunted because they have no technology and they have none of this. So it doesn't matter what kind of system they create. so I, I definitely see the angle, and I think it's very very pertinent for us to talk about this working within the system because a lot of us are so dissatisfied with the way that it acts in in our name especially as americans right. that we get we get disgruntled and we just say well let's just let's just bail but uh but i think that withdrawing my consent from the system and and trying to live a different uh style of life i think is what what should have been um should have been um portrayed to you there because we do run into a society full of um uh i I don't know what the best way to describe it is it's It's almost amoral at this point, the way that I see our society so if we do exactly what you were talking about,
0: be authentic live
1: be be moral yeah. be upstanding be mm-hmm. be good be happy be a very very true, very true. I think we can make a lot of change so we're run, we're running up against it here, um, Tom, and I, I know that um, okay. well, you can continue. We've probably got want. a lot you more know, stuff to here cover and I'd love to speak to you again I, sometime if that's all You can't possible. play
0: this all out at once. Once it gets over a certain amount of time you gotta you gotta dish it out in smaller pieces or your audience will fall asleep. Sure. <laughs> that's
1: correct. That's correct. But um let's go for another can you go for another eight minutes and then we'll try to wrap up. So, um, what are what are some things well, that you wanted to, um, really to touch on before, so, before we you know, leave? I
0: really don't have any. You know, I, I get this question a whole lot. You know, well, what do you want to tell us? You know, at the end, and uh, you know, uh, I could if I could do that little Vulcan hand symbol. You know, I could tell you you know to go in peace and love or something. But uh, I really don't have an agenda of something that I really want to get across. I just interact, and uh, the reason we said the things we said is because where the conversation just happened to go. You know, you led, I followed. It just is organic. It goes where it goes, and I never show up with a sure. speech I want to make or, or really points I want to get across. Maybe I would say one thing is that if this, if people who read or listen to this and see this, want to know more, uh, I can tell them a few places that they can go to get more information. Is that, uh, is that allowable at this point?
1: No, 100%, and then um, I'll put links okay. uh, within the within the show notes to make it easier for them to access the information. Cause, okay. um, I'm all about propagating um, propagating information, so it doesn't matter uh, who who the source is. i am be more than welcome okay, well to, to say, share this I, with the audience, and I'm sure they'd be more than willing to go investigate. I would to, send people to, 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 to if go and they're interested
0: in finding out uh, more of what I do and thoughts that I have, and one – would be, I've written these three books I've told you about, and they are all free on Google Books. So if you go to Google Books and put in My Big Toe, you can read them right there for no cash. Otherwise, you can go to the usual sources. You know, I've got a website, MyBigToe.com. You can go to Amazon, you know, whatever. You can, um, Barnes and Noble and so on, typical stuff. But they're free. You don't have to pay for them. Uh, Second source is YouTube. I've got over 200 videos on YouTube. Every time I do a, a workshop, every time I, I uh, do some kind of a seminar, uh, it all goes on YouTube. If I've got decent video and audio, it goes on YouTube. I don't always. Sometimes I come away empty-handed, but mostly I do, and and uh, it's all on YouTube. And if you want to get, you know, out of 200, that's kind of overwhelming. So if you want the one that is probably the best all-around summary. Uh, I would go to the Calgary workshop. Mm -hmm. It was a workshop I did uh, a couple of years ago in in Calgary, Canada. And it comes Mm -hmm. in three days. Friday's an intro. Saturday is all the theory. How does it work? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you'll get the double slit in there. That's probably where you'll find that double slit uh, thing. And uh, Mm -hmm. you'll find all of the theory in there, the virtual reality and so on. And then on Sunday, Mm -hmm. we talk about uh, applications, which we talk about healing and, and remote viewing and other kinds of things in the the uh the larger reality you know the the non-physical if you will and how do, how do you get there how do you experience it uh, what are the parameters uh, what's the point what are the processes so anybody interested in that that's that's on sunday so that would be the kind of the best summary other than that you'll find every subject you can imagine being talked about out of those 200 and some videos on the site and you and let, unless you're really dedicated you'll probably not watch them all because there's literally hundreds of hours worth of worth of stuff there that would uh, overwhelm anyone so those are the those are the places to go and if you're interested in where I might be talking because I do get around some go to uh, www.mbtevents mbt for my big toe but it's mbtevents.com and they will keep Track of if I'm headed in any direction to give a talk okay. or seminar someplace, you can find out there. Also, there's a forum. Um, you go to the, my website and you can find out about the books if you just want to find out mm-hmm. about them first and find out some about me. But uh, there's a forum there that uh, has a lot of really smart people on it, and it's a nice mm-hmm. place to go and ask questions if you've got if you've got questions. So that's kind of all the the resources, and all of it Great. is. All of the, all of it is accessible for free. That's important to me. When I do uh, videos like this, when I talk with people, and I, I do this kind of thing, my requirement is: is this going to be put, you know, is this going to be made available to the public at no charge? If the answer is no, I'm going to charge people to see this, and I say no, thank you. I've got other things to do. So I only do this if people are going to share the information, because that's. That's mm-hmm. the point. It's about sharing the information.
1: Well, I uh, I do appreciate your time, and hopefully I can talk to you again sometime in, in the not-so-too-distant future. And um, <laughs> I, I do oh, well have, that's um, serious unfortunately, dad, I, know, have, I think I have a baby in my That, that right only now. gets
0: worse if you leave it alone.
1: <laughs> Exactly. So um I do appreciate the time that you spent with us today and and I'm sure that my audience will be extremely excited about the the conversation that we had and and I look forward to having you on here in the future and we can have a um I guess I can get more um application questions from from my audience. The one question that I did get quite a bit and we can I guess we can close with this. Um, what is your what is your take on using entheogens or hallucinogenics to um, to use um, general, as a as a I guess a, a primer a to idea. to create and a the reason? It's a experience. bad
0: idea. Is that yeah? It doesn't really. It gives you an experience. Okay, it gives you an experience. But the point of all this isn't to have an experience. You know, you go to the sure. carnival to have an experience. You know, and you get on the ride, and the ride zings you around, and everybody screams. You know, you get on the roller coaster, and you mm-hmm. had an experience, and then you go home, and you forget about it. It doesn't change your life any. It's the same here. You can, you can get blasted into the non-physical, if you will. Sure. You can get blasted into an okay. out-of-body kind of a reality, but it's just a ride, and it's mm-hmm. an experience. And there's very little you can learn from it, mm-hmm. because what you actually learn in this process isn't the experience itself it's mm-hmm. how to negotiate how to, how you are a part of this larger system how you're connected mm-hmm. to it and it's through that connectedness that you can gain insights it's not through the you know the things you see mm-hmm. and the places you go isn't isn't okay. the point that's important the, point, the part that's important is becoming aware of and learning to operate within your consciousness and within the larger consciousness system and you can't do that on a drug so People who take the drugs and have the experience, if they want yeah. to have the experience again, they feel like, well, let's take a drug. Sure. You know, all that meditation is just too hard, you know, and you take the easy way, well, you get what you pay sure. for. You know, if you take the easy way, you know, you, you get the solution that doesn't really give you very much in return. So in general, yeah, in general, I say it's a bad idea, you know, not that not the drugs are evil. <laughs> it's not that I'm not coming from that sort of thing, uh, okay. but it's just that it's dysfunctional. And for most people who get something positive out of it is because they did it once or maybe twice, saw that reality was bigger, used that to go on then and actually do it themselves, Okay, then I'd say that drug experience was a very positive experience. Those who do it and do it again and again and again and again, they generally end up at a, in a deeper hole than they were before they started. It not only isn't a good spiritual mm-hmm. Experience it's a a negative. Now, yes, Native people use those things, but uh, that's different. It's highly controlled in a very specific context, Mm -hmm. and they have the structure with which they, you know, part of their belief system is the structure with which they deal with it. It's not just a, let's go on a trip sort of thing for them. It's a totally different context with it. Mm -hmm. And even in that context, used that way, within that context of the the, Mm -hmm. uh, indigenous people, it's still very limiting what you can do through using the drug is one thousandth of what you can do without it mm-hmm. uh-oh
1: <laughs>
0: i That's heard true. that yeah
1: all right well um you might hear that <laughs> all right mr Campbell, well thank you so much for the time and like i said um hopefully you and i can do this again sometime in the near future and it's been an absolute pleasure um Talking with you and talking about your well, theory you and yeah, um, sharing this uh, this momentary experience in time with you. So, so thank on. you so much. Bye. All right, take care, sir. All right, bye bye. Oh!